we're, we're starting a new sermon series this morning called Practical Faith. You see it there on the screen. We're going through the book of James uh, together during the summer. And as a church, our kind of rhythm when it comes to our Sunday services is that during the summertime, we, we take an extended look at a, at a book of the Bible. So we go through and we just kind of do a deep dive and spend the entire summer walking through a particular book of the Bible. And we're starting a new one today and continuing through September going through the book of James. Today we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And as we're thinking about this, this new book, one of the questions you should ask when you start a new study in a book of the Bible is who wrote it? Who was it written to? These kinds of things help you give you context, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I think James um, is the kind of person who's, who's extremely practical in his application of what faith looks like, how faith works, what faith looks like. And I think if there's a lot of people in our culture, in our, in our world, that would say, I am a person of faith. And for James, I think if they said that in front of James, James, James would say, what do you mean by that? Please tell me more about how you are a person of faith. What does that look like in your life? How do you practice your faith? Is your faith something, an idea you hold in your mind that you think about sometimes? You have a set of beliefs that you think about? Or does it affect every part of your life? Is it how you live? Is this idea of being a person of faith something relevant to how you conduct yourself in this world? And so the book of James is incredibly practical, as you might have picked up from the title of the series, Practical Faith, right? That's why we called it that. But it's, it, this has re- been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament, So if you ever read the book of Proverbs, you know it's full of practical wisdom, insight about how to live, how to conduct yourself in this world, how you should think about certain things. It's it's full of great wisdom. And in fact, I encourage all of our young people in this church um, to read the book of Proverbs regularly. There's like one chapter of Proverbs for every day of the month. There's 31 chapters. And you could go through the book of Proverbs regularly and that would serve you well when it comes to being a person who is wise and who knows how to live in this world in an effective way. But this is essentially the Proverbs of the New Testament. And this book is all about moving from belief to, to action. Here's how you should live. It's an action-oriented book. It's very, very practical. So if you would say, I'm a person of faith, James would say, well, here's what that looks like. Here's how you live as a person of God, a person of faith. So with that in our minds, we're going to read the first four verses of James chapter 1. So let me get there in my Bible. You would have thought I would have gotten there by now. This wasn't a surprise to me. Um, James chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the intro here, we'll talk about verse 1, then we're going to spend a lot of time talking about verse 2 as well, but this is written, I said, one of the important questions you should ask when you start a new study is who wrote this? Who wrote this book of the Bible? Who is the intended audience of it? Um, And we see it right at the beginning, James, who is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the other scriptures that tell us who James is 
that there are several James, Jameses in the Bible. Um, I don't know if that's the plural form of James, but let's try it out, Jameses. Um, there's multiple ones, but we believe this one is James, the brother of Jesus. This is someone who grew up, like he's a younger brother of, of, of Jesus, right? Grows up in the same home as Jesus, and he's writing a letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So this is the Jewish community all over the ancient world. There were Jewish people in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and Athens, Greece, and these Jewish communities all over the ancient world that had been dispersed, you know, and these Jewish uh, individuals, many of them came to Christ. When the gospel first began to spread, it began to spread among the Jewish people first. And so we have these communities of Christians, Jewish Christians, all around the ancient world. And this letter is written from a Jewish Christian, James, to the Jewish Christians all over the ancient world. Now, James as the brother of Jesus is a very interesting concept. Right, let's think about this together for a few moments. We, we talked about last week the, these gods, these rival gods, money, sex, and power that, are, that, that tempt us for our ultimate allegiance. And this power one is a big deal, right? To, to gain status for yourself, to gain a level of importance, to be the brother of Jesus. That seems like in the early church, you might have been tempted to say, hey, I'm James, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, right? That you, your proximity to powerful people, um, ju just being near them or having a close relationship with them would gain you a certain level of status if you were to use that, if you were to always be talking about it. And I might be tempted, honestly, if I was the brother of Jesus to bring it up casually in conversations. You know, yeah, you've heard of Jesus, right? Yeah, he was my brother, you know, brother, James, the brother of Jesus, you might, might uh, recognize that name, you know, or <coughs> Jesus' brother, you know, just casually in conversations. Um, and there's an extreme version of this, maybe, where you, you would use this for your, you know, if you, you ever had a problem with somebody. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I am, I'm the brother of Jesus, right? And that is not, I love how James begins this letter. This is not how he approaches the, his, his relationship and his background and who he is. He says, James, what's the next two words? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces himself as a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations even say he's a slave. James, the slave of God, the slave of Christ. And that word doulos in the Greek, it, it can be translated servant, slave. It's someone who has given their will over to the person they serve or the cause that they serve. So James says, I am a servant of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I said that, that you might be tempted to, to use your relationship with Jesus for your own personal power or status, but there's another angle to this, which is, this might have been particularly challenging to him to hear that his brother is the Messiah. His brother is Jesus Christ, not, not as, a, as his first and last name. That's not how Jesus Christ works. That's his title. He's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the leader of our lives, the leader of the church, the God the Son, right? God and hu human, 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 excuse me. <laughs> Let me start over. Let me back up. Rewind, rewind, rewind. 100% God, 100% man, Jesus. And he grew up in the same house as him, right? 
And so for James to have grown up watching him and to see how his older brother did stuff, and I'm sure he looked up to his brother, but to hear who he really was and maybe not to have been fully aware of that as he was growing up. We believe Jesus was perfect, so I don't think he was, I think he was a great brother, but there's something about being close to somebody like that where you're maybe a little more skeptical. And we believe that James absolutely was skeptical. We know that James did not believe in Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 4, we have this account of Jesus' brothers not believing in him. And they say to him almost in a taunting way, well, why don't you go present yourself in Jerusalem so everyone can see the big works that you've been doing? That way people will believe in you. And it was, they said that because they didn't believe in him. And they were like taunting him or teasing him. And they're like, we don't, we don't buy all of this. But then something changed. And I believe that something was the resurrection. Um, they, they, you know, Mary believed in him, but the brothers were maybe not convinced. And at some point between John 7 and 1 Corinthians 15, or maybe at 1 Corinthians 15, James begins to believe in Jesus with every part of himself. 1 Corinthians 15, the reason why I mention that is because we have this little hint about some Jesus appearing to James specifically. One of his resurrection appearances, Paul's listing them out in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Jesus appeared to these people on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to Peter. Jesus appeared to his disciples along the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus also appeared to James. And the only time we ever hear mention of this appearance is in 1 Corinthians 15. And we don't have any details other than that one about this appearance. But it seems that Jesus made a special effort to reach out to his brother James his little brother James, and he appeared to him when he was resurrected to show him that I am who I say I am. And everything changed at some point for James. To now James calls himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the leader of my life. I serve him. I'm gonna serve him with everything that I have. And apparently James served him well. James was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem We're told in this moment, the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, which we studied last summer, um, that James was kind of the deciding vote for how they were going to approach all these non-Jewish Christians that were coming to faith. Like, how do we teach them what it means to obey Jesus? How should they live as followers of Christ? And James begins to speak out about what the church should do. It seems like James was the kind of person who, when he spoke, people leaned in to hear what he was going to say. Paul describes James as a pillar of the church, right? He's someone that was there, just a steady force for good in the, in the early church. There's a, there's a tradition in church history that his, he had a nickname, and I've mentioned this nickname to you before, but the nickname is Camel Knees, which I would be offended, I don't know, like that, I would feel funny about a, a nickname like that, but apparently what it meant was that he spent so much time in prayer that it changed the appearance of how his knees looked, like calluses developed on his knees. And so he had this nickname, Camel Knees, or um, they also called him James the Just, that he was this person um, of great character, great reputation. Now he's writing this letter to all of these Christians in the early church. And then well, I, I encourage you, when you read scripture, to engage your imagination. And as I was thinking about this passage of scripture, I was wondering about, I wonder how strongly the family resemblance was there between him and Jesus. That the people who met Jesus in person, when they looked at James, they say, oh, he's got the same eyes. 
Or the way Jesus used to kind of lean on a tree. James does that same thing. I just, I see Jesus when I, when I look at him and maybe it was his voice or he was the same height or whatever it might have been, but I wonder. But whether or not he resembled Jesus very strongly from physical characteristics, he certainly did when it came to spiritual things. And he was a, he was a good person. He was a leader in, in the early church. And I want to read now James 1, verse 2, because we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, this is a, quite a start to this letter. It's like, hey, everybody, greetings. And then he says, when bad stuff happens in your life, trials of various kinds, big ones, small ones, I want you to count those trials as all joy. And this is challenging. If we understand this at any level, we will see how challenging this is. But he throws the door open to, hey, when you have difficulties come your way, trials of various kinds. This is things that come into your life that challenge you, that challenge your faith response, that challenge your um, encouragement levels, that challenge your hope. When you, when you have bad things happen, you should count it all joy. If you're making an accounting of the things that bring you joy and the things that discourage you, he said, put the things that you would think discourage you in the joy category. And then he gives us some important information about why that's the case. But let's talk about these trials of various kinds for a few moments. You don't have to think about this very long before you can come up with your own list, but here's, here's my list. You know, every time you miss your flight, every time you get a text that makes your heart drop a little bit, you get some kind of news, you're like, oh, I don't, it's work-related or relationship-related, a trial of various kinds. Every, every time someone maybe tries to take credit for something you did, at work maybe, or listen, every time you get sick, every time you're ill, trials of various kinds, count them all joy. Now listen, if you've been out of town for a few days and you come to your, you come back home and you open your refrigerator and you discover that all the food in there is room temperature and the light doesn't come on when you open the fridge, I'm not saying that you should have a, 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 just a permanent grin on your face when you do that. Like, ah, in fact, that's creepy. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Just a, like, oh, that person's not okay, I don't think, right? Um, not that you're happy when those things happen, right? We, we sometimes make a distinction between happiness and joy. I think they're related maybe more than we let on sometimes. But you have a range of responses about how you're going to respond when bad things happen. You're not happy when your car gets broken into. You're not happy when you open the fridge and it's not working and the food's spoiled. I don't know if you've noticed, but groceries are expensive right now. You don't want to replace all those, right? Not that you could um, choose to opt out of those experiences. You can't. If you can, by the way, if you can opt out of all those painful, <laughs> difficult experiences, go ahead. But none of us can do that, right? It's not that, um, let, me, let me back up. When you find yourself there in those times, which we all will, trials of various kinds, when you find yourself there, you still have a choice. The choice is not whether or not to find yourself in a situation where you're dealing with a trial, but your choice at that point is, how am I going to respond? How am I going to feel even now that this has happened? And James says this revolutionary thing. He says, count it all joy. 
And this is not our natural response, right? This is, this is more of a supernatural response than a natural response. And we have this big range of options of how we can respond when difficult troubles come our way. Um, and, and there's probably many, but the two I'll mention are, are being angry or being fearful. Oh man, I've got this problem I've got to deal with. This, my appliance stopped working or <laughs> I've got flooding in my basement or whatever, whatever it might be, right? That's to be terrified is a natural response. To be angry is a natural response. I can't believe this happened. I'm so mad about this. I don't have time to deal with this. This is going to cost so much money. Or to be fearful, like, how am I going to afford this? I don't know what I'm going to do. This is going to cause this and this and this, and I don't know what's going to happen. And the response, this third response that James is asking us to take is this joyful response. And I think you can experience all of those, like your natural reaction to getting bad news or having a trial of various kinds come your way. Your natural response is maybe a combination of those. You start angry, you, you go to, to fearful, and then, but James wants us to land on joyful. This is where we should land. Not like, I'm, I'm glad this happened. I want more of these kinds of things. But God has a plan for this. God can use this. And I think it's also interesting when you're studying a, a passage of scripture like this to look at all the words. Like they're, they're there on purpose, right? It's counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not counted all joy if you meet trials of various kinds, as if maybe there might be times where your life is free. You know, you have no trials anymore. You've moved beyond those. I used to have trials in my younger days, but now I'm older and mature and more spiritually, you know, now I have no more trials. You know, no, no, no. It's not if, but when. Jesus had a lot of encouraging promises, but one of the most discouraging promises of Jesus was in this world you will have trouble. Thanks, Jesus. They says, be of good courage because I have overcome the world. He's talking to his disciples. He says, you're going to have trouble this side of eternity. Things are not always going to go the way you want them to go. You're going to face troubles because you're my children, because people, there's an opposition to, to you and to my cause. That's going to happen. That's part of living on this side of eternity. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Paul's, or excuse me, James is actually giving us a, a really important gift here in this passage. He's, he's giving us the gift of reframing our circumstances. You know, the picture and the frame around it, right? He's, the, the frame around it does not have to be fear or worry or anger. It, it can be joy around all of the circumstances that we experience because of God's grace, because of God's power to take good out of difficult situations, we can be joyful. And why can we be joyful? Because God has purpose even in this. If there's a point, if there's something that could come good out of this, God's going to do that. God is, is, a, is a master craftsman at taking difficult situations and bringing good out of them. There's a point even to this. God has a plan for you, and your, the, the plan includes the trials that are coming your way. God has good plans for you. And we can get to this place by knowing something. Verse 3, for you know. 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's saying there's something that if you know this, you can have joy in even in difficult situations, even in trials, even in trouble, you can have joy. But you have to know something. There's something that you need to know. There's a knowledge piece of this. If you don't know it, it's going to be difficult to do what he just said. But knowing that this has a purpose, this is not pointless suffering, but God has a plan for you, and God's plan includes the trials. And the plan is your growth. God wants to grow you. God wants to mature you. God wants to bring you to this place of maturity, this place of strength, this place where you trust him more, you believe in him more. The testing of your faith, James talks about, produces steadfastness. And there's these two Greek words that together get translated into steadfastness or endurance or patience, depending on what your translation is for that one word in James 1 chapter 3 or verse 3. Your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the reason why this is the case, by the way, and actually let me tell you what that word means real quick. Steadfastness means, these two Greek words together mean to remain under something. It's the idea of a weight, like a heavy weight being on your shoulders and you stay there rather than running from it. The steadfastness produces strength in your relationship with Christ and it causes you to seek God like never before. When you have problems, you, you turn to God in ways that you don't typically when things are going great. We trust God more, we turn towards him more, and these problems test our faith and they build endurance, they strengthen us, they, they support us for the future and for following Jesus in, in, the, in our lives ahead. It's a guy named David Osborne who said, too often we try to use God to change our circumstances while he is using our circumstances to change us. Isn't that great? God uses all of these things, all the, the things that, are in our lives to change us, including these situations we would not prefer to have. And we don't get to pick the way we grow. I wish that I could, like, my times of deepest spiritual maturity come when I'm cozy. <laughs> like when I'm just all comfortable and, you know, sitting in a hammock. That's like, that's when I grow the most spiritually. It's like, man, you might have like great times of prayer. You might have great times of meditation during those times and probably some growth. But I think the times that we grow the most are when God brings us through these difficult situations. We don't get a, a choice about the way we grow oftentimes. And the way that God usually brings the greatest growth is in our response to the difficulties that come our way. God has a plan for you. And God has a plan for your maturity specifically. God wants to grow you in your relationship with him. God wants you to trust him more. God wants you to lean into him when you have times of trouble. God has a plan and a good plan for your maturity. Charles Spurgeon talks about, he says this, I've looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing. Not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I have felt it then. To feel the power of faith as I have felt it then. To hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then. And to see God at work as I saw him then. 
isn't that true? Like you, 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 these times where God brings us through difficulties and we go, man, I leaned on my relationship with him. When I was put in that situation where I was totally uncomfortable, I had to trust him like never before. And man, that was times where I felt close to him, times where I grew. That is God bringing good things out of broken situations. Speaking of broken situations, uh, Tuesday morning, 4.30 in the morning, I get a phone call and I actually missed the first call, which was the alarm company for the building here. And the, the next call was from the Spokane police, and that one I did hear. And they said, hey, we're responding to an alarm at the building, and it looks like someone's broken a window, and we are here, we're asking permission if we can go in the building. There's a door propped open and a window that's broken. Absolutely, please go in the building. Can you guys, can you come down here? So I do. And that, that, no one likes to be woken up that way. Pretty confident that you don't like to be woken up that way. But that's how my Tuesday started. And I had the drive down to the building where I was, it was this moment of like, okay, what am I going to do in this situation? How am I going to respond right now? And I was, I was worried. I was fearful. I didn't know what I was going to find when I came to the building. And I was, it was this moment of prayer. And like, I turned the radio on and it seemed like a perfect song for my situation was playing right then on the Christian radio station. And, and I had a little moment with God on the way down to the building. And I have to, confession time, I did not immediately feel joy in that moment. But it was this moment where I knew that I was going to have to lean on God. And the good news and kind of the end of the story, because you're all wondering, is that the, someone broke in, the motion sensor got them, they immediately left without taking a single thing. And so we just had to replace a window, which I'm very grateful for. And it's been replaced by now. And God's grace is that it wasn't supposed to be replaced till next week, and it got replaced even sooner. So I was very happy with that. And God, I know, has a plan even for that kind of stuff. God's plan includes those things. God's plan includes a lack of sleep and being woken up by by bad news in the middle of the night. God is good. God's plan includes even this. And I wonder what you would put into that category or what you're feeling about right now when it comes to these kind of trials. And, And you're experiencing trials of various kinds this morning. And you maybe have a list of of ones that pop into your head of these are the things that I'm struggling with right now, and I'm feeling all kinds of conflict about them feeling fearful, I'm feeling worried, I'm feeling angry. I don't know where this is going. I don't think anything good's gonna come out of this. Can I, can I call you, can I encourage you to trust Jesus even with this? God has a plan. God's plan for you is good. And God wants to grow you in your faith. God wants to mature you. God wants to build you up. God wants to give you the steadfastness that puts you in this place where it has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has a plan even for this. There's a story of a woman in 2011, an 85-year-old nun was in the news, and she was in the news. Her name is Margaret Geary, who uh, lived in a convent near Baltimore, and all the other sisters in her convent had gone to a three-day conference and she had to stay behind. I think she wasn't feeling good or she had some reason why she couldn't go to the, the conference with them. So for three days, it was just her, this elderly nun, alone in her convent. So shortly after they left, she went down from her room to the kitchen to get a snack. And so she opened the fridge in the kitchen. She pulled out a, a jar of celery sticks that were in water. So celery sticks in water. And then she take that, took that jar with her, walked back to the elevator, got on, pressed the button to go back to her room, and the eleva- elevator went about two feet and then stopped. And so then she's like, uh-oh, you know, as we all would in that situation. 
She tried to pry the doors open, couldn't get them open. Then the electricity went out. And she goes, oh, well, I've got my phone. I've got my purse with me, my cell phone. So she takes her cell phone out and she finds that her cell phone does not have a signal in the elevator shaft. And so then she realizes, I'm in a, quite a situation here. I can either panic or I can pray. And for her, it, she realized that no one was going to be home to discover her there. And she had no way of calling for help. And so she was going to spend three days in an elevator in her convent as an 85-year-old woman. And what she had with her, remember, was a jar of celery sticks in water. And so she sat on the floor of the elevator and she ate some celery sticks. And when she got thirsty, she drank some of the water in the celery stick jar. And when she got tired, she curled up and used her sweater for a pillow and put her purse in the small of her back so she had a little more comfort to lay there on the floor of the elevator. And she prayed and she waited. And then three days later, the sisters finally got back. They got her out of the elevator and for her, she chose to look at this situation as, hey, my, my, my sisters went on this conference, and now I get a three-day prayer retreat here in this elevator while I'm stuck here. And she viewed that as something that, she could, that God had provided for her, an opportunity that she did not pick. But she did pick how to feel about it and how to consider that and how that this is an opportunity to grow closer to God. She didn't want that, didn't opt into that situation. But now that you're there, what do you do? And she chose to turn to God. Scripture gives us so many more great insights about this idea of, of knowing that our situations and our difficulties and our challenges are opportunities for us to, to grow. And because of God's grace, right, we can, we can live in this way. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5 talks about rejoicing in our sufferings. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us, put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul is listing some of the difficulties that he's been through in the name of Christ. And after describing some of these problems that he's faced in his ministry, he says in verses 16 and 17, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So this is this difficulty I'm going through. It's light and it's momentary and it's preparing me for something, an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. If your goal in life, your ultimate goal is to seek comfort, then trials are always a problem and there's nothing redeeming about them. But if your goal is to seek Jesus, then problems are something to be joyful about, something we can be joyful about. We can land in this place of joy, not maybe where we have that permagrin on our face that's a little creepy, but we Man, we eventually, we find ourselves there. We respond in all these natural ways, but then we go, there's something good. God has good plans even for this. And there's this joy of the Lord that is our strength that's below the surface that we rely upon. And sometimes it does result in a less creepy smile, right? Sometimes our face gets the message too that we can have the joy of the Lord that is our strength. The choice we have is about whether or not we will have joy because we see where God is taking our trouble. Probably the best illustration of God taking something 
bad or something difficult and bringing something good about that is, is, or something good from it is Jesus on the cross. If you think about what Jesus was doing there on the cross, it was a complete miscarriage of justice. This trial was not fair. It was not done correctly. Jesus had done nothing to be condemned of to death, but he was viewed as a threat. And so the authorities and the powers like conspired against him and Satan certainly being involved in this whole thing. And Jesus is nailed to a cross and dies a criminal's death in a brutal fashion after a horrible beating and dies on the cross in this, in this way that just seems so wrong when we think about this. But Jesus, even in this and through this, this is the plan of redemption that Jesus, as our perfect sacrifice, lays down his life, pays the penalty for anyone's sins who would come to him so that we might have life in him. From this, this horrible, painful thing, God brings life and salvation. God's an expert at that. This is what he does. And so we can, with Paul, understand these words from Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So we do that. We rejoice even in our difficulties and we can rejoice even in our difficulties and we, we sing songs and worship God together even in our difficulties because God can bring good things even out of bad things. God has good plans for us. His plans include difficulties that we go through. And so we can rejoice in the Lord always. One pastor, as I was uh, preparing for uh, teaching on this passage a previous time, actually talked about spiritual disciplines that we choose versus spiritual disciplines that we don't choose. And that we choose to do certain spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines to grow closer to Christ. We, we come to church. We gather with the community. We lift up our voices and sing and we hear from God's word as it's proclaimed. And that's spiritual disciplines that we choose. We, we kneel down and pray. We spend time reading God's word. We do these practices because we choose to. We, we want to grow closer to Christ. And these are the practices and the disciplines that we choose to do knowing that they will help us grow closer to Christ. And then... There's spiritual disciplines that we don't choose. And that's how we can look at our problems. That's how we can look at our trials. We can say, hey, gas is very expensive. That is a spiritual discipline that I did not choose. But I know that God can use that to grow my faith. God can help me trust him more. When random grocery items are like a dollar more than they used to be, God can use even this trial to help me trust him more. God can bring good out of our difficulties. God's plan includes even this to bring us to maturity, to help us believe in him so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that that steadfastness will have its full effect. God has a good plan for us. Let's hold on to that together. And we're gonna sing in just a few moments. And as we're singing, may, may, that, may your lifting your voice be a proclamation of your belief in that that you're going to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because God has a plan. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your truths from your word. We thank you for these things that we're proclaiming together and saying we believe this. And sometimes it's challenging for us to believe these things. But Lord, we know that you are a good God. We know that you have good plans. And so Lord, we hold on to this. 
when we face these trials, may we land at this place where your joy that you provide is our strength and that we can trust in you regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what we may be facing, that you can include even these difficulties for our good and for our growth. And Lord, this is a challenging time. Everyone has challenges. There's the challenges that we collectively are feeling with the increased pressures of the inflation and things like that. And then there's individualized challenges that everyone's facing and problems and things we're trying to solve. And it's easy to be in a place of fear or even anger. But Lord, we want to be in a place of joy. It's our choice, Lord, through your Holy Spirit's power to be able to experience that, to be able to to move into that place of trusting you more. And so God, help us to not just have our natural response, but the supernatural response that you help us with. Help us to have the joy of the Lord, to count it all joy. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room today who doesn't have you in their life to be that resource that needs to be in a relationship with you. I pray that you would help them even now while I'm praying to say yes to you, to receive the gift of salvation that you extend. That you don't want us to be alone and without a cause or a purpose in our life, Lord, but you've come to this world to show us how much you love us and to provide your life as a gift for us and then to give us your Holy Spirit so that we might never be alone. You promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So Lord, if there's anyone here today that would say they need that, I pray that right now in this moment you would invite them into your family, welcome them into your family, welcome them home. And Lord, may we all who have found ourselves in this place of being home, may, us ne- may we never forget what it means to be a part of your family and what it means to have you as this resource and this power in our lives. Lord, you are good. Your mercies endure forever. I pray that you continue to bless this church. Thank you so much for my church family. So grateful for this place where we can be reminded together and we can worship together and even in conversations in the lobby after the service. Lord, just encourage and and challenge, strengthen each other, Lord. This is a great place, a great family, and we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.